Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today are Becky Stone and Caroline McIntyre from Greenville, Chautauqua. And on the telephone from Illinois is Leslie Goddard. We'll be talking about this year's Greenville, Chautauqua, History Alive, and the theme is Courage. So welcome to the journal, ladies. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Caroline, why don't you give us a little bit of background about the Greenville Chautauqua? This is our 20th year, if you can believe that. We've every year for 20 years presented a festival of history alive. We started out with um, five shows and an audience of a couple dozen. And this year we're 10 days, 30-some shows. And we have five characters that are coming, and it's very exciting. There will be thousands of people there last year and even more coming this year from across the region, out of state. All right. You have shows in Greenville, Spartanburg, and across the border in Nashville. Is that right? Yes. How did you decide on this particular theme of courage? We get together a couple years in advance, and we talk about what characters we would like to have visit us, um, how they thread together in some kind of a theme. So we came up with a theme of courage uh, about a year and a half ago, and we find it very interesting that every topic we have becomes very, very topical for the year that it's presented in. And I think courage is something that's very important to us this year. Becky, you've got a number of characters that you have portrayed over the years, Maya Angelou and others. Did you pick Harriet Tubman, or did they have Harriet Tubman, and then they picked you? I wish that I had chosen Harriet Tubman, but for uh, all of the characters that I do, the Greenville Chautauqua Society has called and asked if I would be interested in doing them. And the very first was Pauli Murray, Mm -hmm. and who is recently becoming better known, but uh, they were having Eleanor Roosevelt, and uh, the theme was autobiography, and Polly Murray had written an extensive one, and they were friends, Polly Murray and Eleanor Roosevelt, so that was my introduction, and they were... They were pleased with the work I did, and several years later, they asked me to do Harriet Tubman, and I didn't have to share with Eleanor Roosevelt or anybody. (laughs) (laughs) I got to be Harriet uh, all on my own, and so I've done her for a while. I believe you're a retired school teacher, right? I was in education, yes. Okay. So how did you get into performing? Ah, well... That started with my childhood, with uh, singing and a love of theater and being a theater major at Vassar College. Um, It's just always been something that I've loved. And and you can talk to a lot of teachers. Teachers are performers in their own right. Well, I... Many years ago, when the university was trying, South Carolina was trying to help younger faculty, they had a series of workshops entitled Teaching as a Performing Art. Mm, And it is. It certainly Mm. is. And I primarily consider myself a storyteller. And that enriches teaching, and teachers are fabulous storytellers. Historians, if they're not storytellers, are not very good historians. Right. You have to tell a story. I would agree. So... In preparing to be Harriet Tubman, what kind of research did you do? Well, at 
the point that I first did her, there were only two scholarly works written by uh, two women. Last names are Larson and uh, Clifford. And they were excellent, thoroughly researched books. You know, Harriet herself was illiterate, and she was involved with the Underground Railroad. People did not want to keep records on that. But I did read those two books, and they referred to the Cumbie River Raid uh, during the Civil War. And it was only a few years ago that I found this book by Jeff Grigg, who, um, you know, focused just on that river raid. So that kind of fleshed out what Larson and Clifford just kind of devoted one chapter to. But there, there isn't too much scholarly work on, on Harriet Tubman, so I've had to rely heavily on those three things. Well, when, I, when I first got the information and I looked at the, the list of characters of this year, Churchill, Francis Marion, Harriet Tubman, Clara Barton, and Alice Paul, I talked with Caroline McIntyre, and I said, well, except for Alice Paul, I've got a South Carolina connection for every one of these folks, even Winston Churchill. He came here during World War II at Fort Jackson to see the first experimental drop of what would become the 82nd Airborne Division. So we've got Harriet Tubman and the Combee Ray. We've got Clara Barton, who helps with relief after the great 1893 hurricane. And Francis Marion needs no introduction. Right. But Caroline, Alice Paul, I can't get a connection to South Carolina. Well, our theme this year is courage. And Alice Paul, you're absolutely right, does not have a South Carolina story. The women's right to vote movement took 70 years and most of the leaders were old and tired by the time the 1920s came around. Alice Paul was young, dynamic, a great organizer, and she irritated people very badly. So she decided that when Tennessee was voting, that she would not come to Tennessee because she would um, she would not go to the South because she would disturb the right to vote. Okay, and Tennessee was the crucial vote on the the amendment. Yes, great story. But now there were South Carolina ladies in Tennessee. The Pulitzers were in yeah. Tennessee, so maybe there's a distant connection. Maybe she told them to go to Tennessee. I don't know, but wait, that's a good question. I don't know that. I'll have to look into that. Okay. I think she she was constantly asked by them to come, and she said, "No, you got this, ladies. You got this." Okay. Leslie, I asked Becky how she was doing her research. You've got two different characters, and certainly with Clara Barton, the bibliography probably takes up about 10 or 15 pages. <laughs> so You know, you it's surprising, actually. Clara Barton has not been the subject of a whole lot of academic, scholarly sort of research, or even really popular biographies. Uh, there's two big biographies major, one focusing on Civil War and one focusing on her life. She is much more a heroine as a sort of uh, kid's role model. A lot of children's biographies about her, which I find fascinating because she is a tremendous role model for what an individual person can do. Uh, but I think there's a gap as far as her, uh, her popular perception. Okay. And what about Alice Paul? Alice Paul, boy, Alice Paul is fascinating. I am always shocked that she is not a household name, not only because she was so influential and so 
incredibly dynamic in the last decade of the women's suffrage movement in the 1910s. I mean, she was out there with really innovative tactics. She organized the very first picketing demonstrations ever outside the White House. This was in 1917, and they did it during World War One which, of course, made them immediate targets for accusations of unpatriotism and traitors to your nation. Uh, she had a, a, a technique where she decided she's going to hold the political party that has power responsible for not uh, passing women's suffrage, because if you got power, you're responsible for what you do not do. Very innovative, and, and like Caroline said, it just kind of dug into pe- under people's skin. She, Woodrow Wilson was not a fan. No, he was not a big fan, not a big fan. Although, to his credit, he did, at the, as the war was kind of winding down, he did come forward in support of women's suffrage, whatever his personal beliefs. Uh, he did support it, and that was pretty critical to the victory. And Walter, but he wouldn't have done it had there not been some pretty decent agitation. And, Walter, one of the things I, I love about the Chautauqua audience, uh, we just had a talk on Alice Paul a couple weeks ago, and I said, everybody, close your eyes. Who here has never heard of Alice Paul? The 300 people in the audience and 250 people willingly raised their hand that they had come to an event about some part of history they had never heard anything at all about, and they were fascinated. We tell stories, not only all of the wonderful things of these people, but we will tell the dark stories, because every one of our characters, no matter how courageous, have some things about them that are a little dark. and. It's all up for discussion at Chautauqua. Caroline, why don't you describe what the audience experience is at a Chautauqua event? Is it participatory, or is it, for example, is Becky as Harriet Tubman going to make a speech, deliver her case, and then take questions? What's the format? Well, we always have the performer comes out and uh, tells stories in the character of the person, uh, in costume, uh, so you really believe that you're talking to Harriet Tubman. She might sing a, um, a spiritual to you. Uh, Clara Barton might bring her bandages and tell you how to tie the bandages. We'll tell stories that bring their character to life. And then we ask questions from the audience. It is the most important thing. It's pivotal in Chautauqua that the audience is always a part of the show. Um, sometimes it takes it while to form a very good question. Sometimes they just pepper out 20, 30 questions. But it's all about what the audience wants to know. Does Becky respond as Becky, or does she respond as Harriet Tubman? Uh, the first part is the she will always respond in character until the audience lets the character go. Uh, we do always have some time at the end of the show Well, the uh, performer will uh, answer questions out of character, and you can ask Becky Stone about Harriet Tubman, and Becky will say, well, some books say this, some books say that, or, nope, I lied about that. (laughs) (laughs) She just told a story. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think it might be fun for our listeners. Becky, if you don't mind getting into character, and would you prefer me to ask you a question? and then let you respond in character? I'm not always sure that I would have a a story to answer the question. 
that's one of the things about the the Q and A um, in character is that it does give you the chance to bring out stories that you haven't been able to tell in your presentation. But sometimes it's just a yes or no. I just gave a little bit of thought to it, and I thought I could just share a little bit of what she thought about President Lincoln. Let's hear what she thought about Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Well, I do regret that I never got to meet Mr. Lincoln. You know, I, I had the chance to to meet Sojourner Truth, and, and we disagreed on on Mr. Lincoln. She felt that he understood the importance of emancipation, but I did not believe that. He was a man in power, and I would tell people he's just like a doctor coming to tend something. You know, a snake bite, he come called a doctor, and the doctor comes with the, to deal with the snake bite, cuts into the snake bite, and tries to draw the poison out. But you know, that snake is still there. And while that doctor's tending to one bite, the snake bites that man someplace else. So the doctor turns and starts to deal with that bite, and the, and the snake will bite that man someplace else. And and that's going to keep happening until you kill the snake. And that's what Mr. Lincoln don't understand. He's got to kill the snake, you know, until he realizes that he has to end slavery. And he doesn't seem to want to do that until he ends slavery. This war is not going to be over, and and we need to we needed to use the black soldiers. It took forever before they would allow soldiers. We were two or three years in the war before they would allow us to arm black men and form black regiments. All those things finally turned the tide. But you know. I do regret not having met the man because Sojourner told me the story that when she met Miss Lincoln, that she thanked him for everything that he had done. And he said, I just was doing what I needed to do to serve my country. And I respect that answer. Because that's what we all were doing, trying our best to serve our country. Didn't take any glory for himself. It was just to serve. Thank you. Before I talk to your friend, Miss Clara Barton, how did you find Beaufort, South Carolina, when you came down this way during the war? Hot. It was too hot. And and you know allowed for all this disease. I was there was they they would call it the sickly season. Mm-hmm. But then they would suffer from the fever. But then they get the ague in the winter time too. It was there was just too much disease down here, and so you just did as much nursing and helping as you could with that. And and you were a nurse in Beaufort. 
Yes, I was a nurse for a long time serving the black troops and, and the fugitive slaves that would come in there. We call them contraband. And that's what I did until I finally was allowed to start a, a spy ring, which a, led to the Cumbie River Raid. And if, if I remember rightly, the Cumbie Raid resulted in about six or 700 enslaved persons escaping to the Beaufort Port Royal area? Yes, they did, from four different plantations that we, we were able to, to get in there and destroy the stores of food and supplies there. And, and while the boats were there, over 700 fugitives made it to the boats and back to Beaufort. Many of those, particularly males, signed up and enlisted in the Army. Yes. Everybody talks about the black regiments from Boston, but the 1st South Carolina. First and second. Right there out of Beaufort. Yes. Miss Barton, you came to South Carolina after the great hurricane of 1893, and you've heard what Miss Tubman said about the fevers and the health, but you came into not just a disaster in terms of loss of life and health, but you also jumped somewhat into a political hornet's nest, did you not? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It was not It was not an easy time at all. It was one of the most painful responses we had ever had to do for the Red Cross. This was right after the, the great hurricane in uh, August, 1893, um, community in the Sea Islands. It was a largely African population. They produced this beautiful, long, silky Sea Island cotton. They had no warning. There was no, no notice, no way to prepare. The storm just shifted course and struck overnight. So devastating that initially people thought no one could possibly have ever survived. Only later, as it was discovered, people clinging to... Uh, broken tree limbs and pieces of uh, wreckage, that there were approximately 30,000 people homeless. Crops had been washed out to sea, livestock washed out to sea, homes. The hurricane went on. It moved through Beaufort, moved through Charleston, destroying so much, devastating destruction. People had little concern for the people living on the barrier island. Only as news started filtering in that the damage and the plight of the survivors was coming in, the government could do nothing. They said, this is 1893, we're in the middle of an economic crisis, tremendous depression. I said, I know that even though we have been pushed to the limit in what we can provide at the other disasters, these are people who must be helped. We have to provide whatever aid is possible. So we went down there, knowing there was no way we had the resources. The relief effort was so overwhelming. But even with limited funds, we did what we could. We decided food is the most important priority. We had very few rations. We gave each family a peck of corn and a pound of bacon a week. We showed them how to plant their own gardens. We knew that it was going to take at least a year. We had to wait until the next crop could be harvested. That was going to be nearly a year later. 
We stayed for a year, providing medical aid, tools, seeds, housing materials, a rehabilitation project. I told these people, you must plant Sea Island cotton, not cheaper cotton. You must rebuild what is needed for future harvest. We stayed on the Sea Islands until summer of 1894. We left just before the cotton harvest came in the next autumn. And I am happy to say that when the relief effort was over, fields of that Sea Island cotton had been reestablished, homes had been rebuilt, schools rebuilt, churches rebuilt. It showed that an organized group of determined people can make a difference in the lives of other human beings. Well, was this the largest, one of the largest projects the Red Cross undertook? Absolutely. Not only one of the largest, but of the, one of the ones that we came into with the fewest resources. And it's my understanding that Governor Tillman was not particularly helpful with your efforts. No, he certainly was not. He certainly was not. He had a feeling that these people, these these. Africans, if we provide help to them, they will immediately turn lazy. Uh, If you provide assistance, they're not going to do any work on their own. I am happy to tell you it was the opposite impact. No one could have been more desirous of helping themselves and doing the work that they could than those wonderful survivors. Here's one example. We were given donations of clothing, desperately needed clothing. Many of the clothes that were given were ball gowns, (laughs) and discarded uh, clothes that were of very little use. The women in that area sat down with their needles and their threads, reconstructing clothing that was of no use into useful clothing that they could provide for themselves and their neighbors. It was one of the most tremendous responses and one of the most vivid examples of a response to the falseness of politicians' beliefs. It's quite a story, and I know from my own research, when we talk about the 1893 storm, the surge over the islands was 12 to 15 feet high. It literally swept some of the islands, like Edisto, which have a little bit of elevation, almost clean. The fact that the Red Cross came in as a private organization and provided the help, that was absolutely crucial to the survival of, as you say, 30,000 people who were homeless. That's absolutely. Was, you know, in the, the devastation inland, devastation in places like Charleston was so dramatic, many just assumed there's no way anyone on the Sea Islands could even have survived. We won't even go there to look. You always need to go and look. One of the things that I felt very strongly about with the Red Cross, the Red Cross began internationally during, during the Civil War. I had no idea it was even founded when it was in 1862, it was before I ever learned of it. One of the things I said was, the Red Cross was initially established for uh, military wartime relief, helping out wounded soldiers and, and soldiers in need of supplies during critical wartime. I said this is exactly the same kind of assistance that is needed in disaster times. We worked for years 
to get the American Red Cross established. And when it was established in 1881, I said it must not just help in wartime. It is critically important that we help in times of disaster. And uh, I'm happy to tell you that the, uh, it is considered the American amendment to the Red Cross Constitution that we help in times of natural disasters. And before you got the, the Sea Island storm, uh, the Johnstown flood in Pennsylvania? Yes, Johnstown flood. Uh, we've assisted at uh, a number of different disasters. But whether you're talking about, um, uh, there, was a, there was a famine in Texas that we helped out in the 1880s. There was a yellow fever epidemic in Florida. There was a, an earthquake uh, in 1888 in Illinois. The, the Johnstown flood. What is needed in every case are human connections. Uh, yes, yes, you're going to need food. You're going to need bandages. You're going to need clean clothing. Oftentimes, you're going to need something as simple as candles and light to allow doctors to do their work. But what you really need is the sense that somebody cares, that people are willing to help, that people are going to step in and do what they can. That emotional support is just as important as any kind of relief that you can provide. That's the human connection. All right. Thank you. Let's go out of character now. And Becky Stone, I'd just like you to comment on how you feel about Harriet Tubman, her place in history. Because you've you've really got to believe in it something to to make it work, and I believed you when you were talking about the Abraham Lincoln story, and certainly about the Cumby raid. But how do you feel about this this person? I must say that I really love Harriet Tubman, and I love uh, doing her. She. Uh, was not able to write about herself. But uh, actually, there's another book uh, by Jean Yumez where uh, she's done the research and provided for us excerpts of newspaper articles, letters that people wrote. And I draw from those letters the kinds of characterization things that I do. She was clearly a woman of faith. I think that she probably had some sense of the danger that she was putting herself in through, with the Underground Railroad and with coming down on her own. Uh, she found that to set up this uh, espionage ring in Beaufort, uh, she found that the people in uh, the black people, in the slaves, didn't trust her because she talked differently. And that was something that the research revealed. There was the Gullah uh, really threw her off. It was hard for her to communicate with people. So they didn't trust her because she talked more like the white folks than she talked like them. And that she had relationships with the white soldiers. And the slaves there did not trust white northern soldiers any more than they trusted their white slave owners. So uh, she had a lot to, to overcome, but time and time again, she gives all credit to, to God's guiding her and providing for her. And she, she had close call after 
close call, and he came through for You mentioned the reaction of the contraband. Mm. South Carolina ex-slaves called contraband by the Union. Mm -hmm. Their mistrust of northern whites, and particularly the Army, and sadly their stories that they were not some of them were not treated too well, particularly by the soldiers. You know, and Willie Lee Rose's rehearsal for Reconstruction talks about the first folks who came down, the teachers, mm-hmm. the school marms, that's the term she, that she used. The reaction sometimes was, well, we've just traded one set of white bosses for another. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting part of the story, but I, I really appreciated you putting in Harriet Tubman was clearly African-American. She was very dark, mm-hmm. and but it, skin color didn't make any difference to the South Carolina folks who spoke Gullah, mm-hmm. and she talked like, as you say, those folks from up north. Right, right. Um, no, the, the, those were barriers that she had to overcome. So she, when she first went to the Department of the South in Buford, uh, she was getting supplies and, uh, you know, living at their camp, she had to go out and and be independent, and she supported herself by doing laundry and making root beer and selling it and uh, pies. And she would hire the blacks there in, in the area to go and sell these things to the soldiers. So uh, she had resources that, you know, she knew how to support herself, and that was the kind of thing that she taught and you know, these fugitive slaves to do because they just knew to do what the boss told them to do or to work in a field. So so that was a helpful thing, but it did. She needed to establish distance from the Union soldiers. I'm fascinated by this spy ring. Again, out of character, let's talk a little bit more about that because in most cases it's kind of a historic footnote. But this was using the African-American community who was still in the Confederacy to get information. Yes, yes. Um, the, the research shows that there were nine men that she she relied on greatly, and they were able to get information back to her that she passed on to the Union soldiers in command in Buford. And uh, none of this was written down, of course, but she had a fantastic memory and could get really detailed information. I I really can't remember offhand when they finally started to use her as uh, a spy. But the first raid that was effective for them, she provided the information that enabled the Union to go to Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, defeat the Confederacy there, and then the so then they trusted what what she could bring back, and uh, she helped plan the Cumbie River raid. And there were slaves. William Plowden and Harriet uh, were in the lead boat on that raid with Colonel uh, Montgomery, and Plowden had the information as to where the torpedoes were in the river and could navigate the boats around those uh, mines. I, I didn't know before. I thought torpedoes were 
missiles, kind of underwater <laughs> missiles. I didn't know until I researched this that there are mines in, that are anchored in the river. Yeah. In, in, in the Civil War, they did. That was a, a common defense for harbors is usually to take a beer keg or something similar, coat it with tar and explosives and some kind of fuse, usually contact. Well, um, you know, I was mm. most impressed that these illiterate slaves, one could pick up this information and uh, and then use it effectively to navigate in the dark. They, they left at three in the morning and uh, made their way. Of course, it was June, but you know, they they were started off in the night of June second, or I guess it would be the early morning of June third. It was still dark. Well, to me, it's it's also amazing that it was effective that the Union soldiers used began to use her information because she was a woman, and she was African American. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the people in the Department of the South, somebody had some brains somewhere along the line. Yes, yes. So, ladies, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and we're discussing Chautauqua History Alive, which will take place in the upcountry of South Carolina, and the theme this year is courage. And I have with me in the studio Becky Stone and Caroline McIntyre, and on the line, Leslie Goddard from Illinois. And so every now and then we're going to go into character Becky Stone as Harriet Tubman, and Leslie Goddard as Clara Barton and Alice Paul. Caroline McIntyre, the director of Greenville Chautauqua, will just be Caroline McIntyre. Caroline, why don't we get some some dates and places for when these performances will take place? Well, the Chautauqua Festival is in June every year. This year it's the 15th through the 24th. That's 10 straight days. We have shows morning, afternoon, and evening. In the evening, the shows very often are outdoors and parks or under tents and like that, so you can enjoy the wonderful June summer evening. In the daytime, they're indoors at various locations in Spartanburg, Greater Greenville. We also have shows up in Asheville, North Carolina. Okay. Well, you say enjoy the summer evening. What about the Skeeters? They're not allowed. <laughs> we charge we charge them admission. People come for free. <laughs> well, you're talking about three shows a day, so Leslie and Becky would have to, would do three performances in a given day. That's uh, no, I'm sorry. Each of the performers do six or seven different events. So uh, for example, if you come on a weekend, you'll be able to see Francis Marion in the morning. You can come and see Winston Churchill will be in the afternoon, and that evening will be Harriet Tubman. So you can come for a weekend and catch all five of the different shows, or you can spread it out during the week. Uh, if you're coming in from out of state, coming in for a whole weekend, you'll still be able to get all five shows. Okay. I was just because I was thinking... Gosh, I can understand sometimes doing two shows in one day, but three. Three that, is a lot. Yeah, and uh, they, they keep us so busy. My biggest regret is that it, it's hard to get to 
see the other characters present uh, because we're presenting (laughs) somewhere else during the day. And one of the things that we do is we house the performers uh, at Greenville Tech. They let us use their student housing. So we feel it's also an important thing that the performers get to meet each other and exchange stories and learn from each other because this is a craft that not many people do. Um, and there are not many other places in the country that you can see this. We're constantly asked, oh, I just moved to Florida. Where do I get to see this? Well, you got to come back to Greenville, South Carolina. <laughs> well, you know, I was just, just thinking of, again, the connections here with the fact that Harriet Tubman had been in Beaufort, Clara Barton had been in Beaufort. If there were any kind of joint program where they, in character, talk about their particular roles or, for example, Francis Marion in the swamps and his spy rings, Harriet Tubman in the swamps, her spy ring, in other words, the connections, and Francis Marion using what were then revolutionary tactics. Well, one of the places you can do that is we do have morning coffees, and that's when Becky and Leslie and Ken uh, might show up all together and sit and talk about these things. So we do out-of-character discussions in the morning during the festival, and that would be a time when they could discuss how their characters relate to each other. Yes, both Francis Marion and Harriet Tubman know a lot about the swamps. (laughs) Of course, Churchill fought in a guerrilla war in South Africa, which is part of his story that people don't often know. Anyway, Leslie, back to you out of character. You mentioned earlier that Clara Barton did not found the Red Cross, which is something most Americans, I thought in my fourth grade history book that that's what it said. It was founded abroad, and then there was an American branch, if you will. Right. She founded the American Red Cross in 1881, but the Red Cross itself actually began in 1862, um, in, started mostly in Switzerland. Um, And the amazing thing is that during the Civil War, Clara Barton was doing most of the same kind of work that the Red Cross would become known for. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting evolution. And she nursed overseas as well, right? She did. She did. She uh, she went abroad after the war. She she had a, a health breakdown and went abroad. And uh, some of the members of the International Red Cross came to her and said, "Why has the United States not signed the Geneva Convention, which is the convention that that began the Red Cross, among other things?" And she sort of said, "What, what what's the Red Cross?" So she began working for the uh, the International Red Cross, especially during the Franco-Prussian War. And that's really when she realized what a what a huge force this could be for taking the work she had been so committed to during the war and and expanding it to be able to help people um, even in in peacetime and in other times. And she's such a great example, I think, of um, someone with a just a big vision. You know, this this really goes to the heart of why I do this. You know, and when I was in college, you know, like, like Becky, I was studying theater, and I, I had this dream I'm going to do theater. But theater companies aren't, aren't necessarily interested in history and how <laughs> historical change happens, which is what I'm really fascinated by, and the impact one individual can have, even if you don't think of them as a, um, an activist. And there's really, it, it's hard to find anyone in history who was such a 
significant example of um, being an individual conduit between the home front and the war or between ordinary citizens and uh, a disaster area. Um, she's, she's tremendously inspiring that way. Obviously, she had, I was going to say, a very strong constitution and a thick hide because given the situation yeah. politically, she had to be very de- a very determined person. She was. She definitely was. And, you know, in many cases, because she liked to work independently, um, she, she wasn't affiliated with any of the large organizations like the Sanitary Commission or the, uh, the Christian Commission. And they, in many cases, official government bureaucrats allowed her to do what she would do, you know, like bringing supplies to a battlefield because they just needed the assistance so much. But she was also up against huge gender norms. I mean, the notion of a a woman going by herself to a battlefield, people told her her reputation would be ruined. And she said at one point, she said, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I worried about this too. And at a certain point, I thought, you know, there are men dying on battlefields after a battle because they don't have access to bandages and candles and things like that. One of the most touching stories I've got is um, she talks about, she was very proud of the fact that she served at a battlefront hospital, not hundreds of miles behind the line, but on the battlefront with bullets whizzing overhead. And at one point she talks about how a young man who had been wounded asked for water, and she lifted up his head with her left hand, with her right hand held a, a cup of water to his lips, and suddenly her her sleeve jerked, and the man sort of jerked backwards. A bullet had ripped through her sleeve and slammed right into his chest and killed him instantly. And she said, there was nothing more I could do. I, I, I you know, covered him with a blanket and left, but I never mended that hole in my sleeve. And I always feel like there's, there's that, there's that emotional power of stories like that and that emotional power of theater. That's one of the p- most powerful ways, I think, to, to help people understand how political and, um, and personal and gender and civil rights struggles happen. It, it's through those kinds of challenges and struggles and courage. Um, theater is such a great way to explore these issues. Well, I think this talking about a strong personality gives us a very nice segue to Alice Paul, uh, who's been left out of the conversation pretty much. So out of, out of character, uh, Leslie, would you talk a little bit about Alice Paul? Oh, absolutely. Um, she's one of those characters who just rewards the more you, you research her. Um, she's a very tiny woman. Uh, she was a Quaker. She was sick quite a lot of her life grew up with this notion of equality and a very strong notion that in order to achieve goals, you need action. You need, she, she, she picked up the British suffragette phrase, deeds, not words. And in the 19-teens, she really emerged as the leader of the most radical edge of the suffrage movement. And even though we don't necessarily think of what she was doing as necessarily wildly radical, it really, 
really was. Uh, doing things like um, she organized a parade down Pennsylvania Avenue the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. And spectators became uh, rowdy and started shouting at these women. Uh, Police refused to step in and help. Spectators pushed into the line of march. It devolved into uh, practically a riot. And at the end of it, Alice Paul said, to all of you, who are struggling today and and you think everything is lost, what happened today is the best thing that could have happened because we're going to see a lot more suffered sympathy and interest from now on. And she was absolutely right. It turned out to be a, a, a powerful way of gaining visibility. And she pushed and pushed and pushed constant visibility, constantly doing new actions. Um, And uh, when you think about, you know, going back to my my point about picketing the White House, I was thinking about the uh, demonstrations in Washington, D.C. We kind of take it for granted today, the right to carry protest picket signs outside the White House. And we forget that this was seen as absolutely undignified, an embarrassment to the President of the United States, and during the war, um, something traitorous. She did it anyway. And she was very clever. When, when Woodrow Wilson came and said, you know, we're, we're fighting to make the world safe for democracy, she said, okay, let's put that on a banner. And she had women stand outside the White House saying, we're going to fight for the things we've always held dearest to our hearts, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government. So clever. How can, you, how can you argue this? Woodrow Wilson's own words. But of course, what they were doing is pointing out the huge irony of it. She made it impossible for the government to um, ignore them. And uh, when they threw some of these picketers in prison, she organized the women into a hunger strike. And when they were force-fed, she got the word out about them being force-fed. And it was a massive embarrassment. A lot of people don't remember that, you know, of the there's about a thousand women who picketed the White House for the right to vote. Of that thousand, about 500 were arrested and uh, around 140 served time in prison for asking for the right to vote. That was powerful stuff. And of course, nowadays, when I whenever I go to vote, I always get a little teary eyed thinking about the, the sacrifices. And it was huge. When women, when the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, it immediately doubled the electorate of the United States um, and uh, gave women this most fundamental right. It was huge. One thing interesting in the story you just told us is you said she was reared a Quaker and somewhere pacifism seemed to have disappeared. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So true. Yeah, and a a lot of the early leaders of the women's suffrage movement were Quakers, certainly Lucretia Mott and Susan B. Anthony, and and Paul as well. And Paul studied in London and participated in British movements, which were violent. Uh, She herself was arrested for... uh, she hid out in a cloakroom once, and uh, during a luncheon in, in London, she threw a shoe through a window and yelled, Vote for women! And she said, I don't think violence would work in the United States. Uh, what we need is nonviolent resistance. And she told picketers, you know, if the police come after you, stand your ground, don't fight back, 
don't give in to your instinct to fight. We're nonviolent resistors. Um, and of course, that turned out to be a very successful tactic. The interesting question of whether she was aware of what Gandhi was doing at the same time, and there's never been a specific link developed, um, but there's no question that they were pursuing very similar tactics at about the same time. Ladies, we've got about five minutes. Anything in particular you'd like our audience to know about Chautauqua, about your character before we sign off? And Becky, I'm going to start with you. Okay. You know, with all this talk about the the right for women to to vote, I think people should know that that was one of Harriet Tubman's causes as well. She was relatively safe up north and did a lot of speaking, of course, uh, on the abolition movement. And uh, but she also attended suffragist meetings and spoke there. It was kind of like white women have been held down too long and now that the white white women want the vote, the white men better let them have it. And she also, she she's more of a patriot than people think she was and, and her view of what was going on in the, our country was broader than the crimes against black people in in terms of slavery. Okay. Leslie? One of the things I love, when you sit down in a theater performance like this, it it gives biographical stories such a more intimate feeling. You really feel like you're, you're in a room with Harriet Tubman or Alice Paul or Clara Barton. It makes history so much more personal. And you start to realize that these were these were human beings, you know, that even while Clara Barton was, you know, tearing across the countryside, bringing bandages and, and food to soldiers, at the same time, she was dealing with things like, you know, how is she going to do her hair up because it's falling down in the rain and, and all this kind of stuff? And what is she going to do when she runs out of food? In other words, what I hope and what I love when it happens is that People, a discussion gets going afterwards, and people start talking about how do human beings change their world. And these stories remind us that uh, we're facing struggles to change the world every day, and uh, these, are, these are great inspirational stories of how that's happened and can happen. Okay. I would like to thank Becky Stone, Leslie Goddard, Carolyn McIntyre, but especially Harriet Tubman, Clara Barton, <laughs> and Alice Paul for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Becky Stone as Harriet Tubman and Leslie Goddard as Clara Barton certainly made history come alive, which is what the Greenville Chautauqua is all about. And it's always interesting with Harriet Tubman in Beaufort during the Civil War and Leslie Goddard as Clara Barton in Beaufort after the great Sea Island storm 
how nationally known figures have a South Carolina connection. And because of their work, they are part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.